Well, we are in the book of Ephesians, and by now, if you've been here a little while, you know that Ephesians is divided into two halves. The first half, the first three chapters, is all about how to sit or where we are seated. And what do I mean by that? It's about who we are in Christ. Scripture says we're seated in heavenly places with him. It says, relationally, we're already with God if we're a believer. We're already with him. The first three chapters are all about what you have in Christ, what he's done for you. We just get this this beautiful outpouring from the author of Ephesians, Paul, telling us everything that God has done for us. It's overwhelming. And then the back half of Ephesians, the back three chapters, are all about how to walk, how to live out this Christian life, how we should live in light of what Jesus has done for us. But remember, if if you go straight to the back three, if you try and walk before you learn how to sit, you're gonna be very frustrated. If you get straight to how should I live as a believer without being overwhelmed by the love of Jesus, you're gonna be very frustrated. You might have even had some of you a negative experience with a church before where, where all you got blasted with is this is how you should be living, but you never had an encounter with Jesus that made you excited to live for him. It just seemed like rules and dead religion. So if you haven't been through the first three chapters of Ephesians, we're in the back half today. I want to encourage you, read it. Or you can go pick up a CD for free at the Welcome Center after the service. Go home and just start listening to the teachings and be overwhelmed by what God has done for you so that you don't jump straight to this is how you should live. Because everything we do in the Christian life is a response to the love of Jesus. It's a response to what he's done for us. There's a difference between my wife asking me to mow the lawn and my neighbor asking me to mow their lawn. I love my wife. We have a relationship. My neighbor asked me, I'm going to be like, what? No. And I'll have a few other things to share with them too. But uh, there is a relationship with my wife. And sometimes you find that you want to know God, but you jump straight to, okay, how should I live? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? The Christian life is about what he's done, what he's done, what he's done for you. You need to have the relationship, and then the behavior flows out of that. Otherwise, it's dead, it's meaningless, and you'll be frustrated very, very quickly. Let's jump into verse 15 of chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Most of us are going to learn a word immediately. Verse 15 says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And you're going to want to underline this, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The word circumspectly simply means carefully. And the the idea behind the word is, is almost a circle, like you have the word circumference. Circumspectly means be fully aware. It says look all around you, live your life, walk it out with a full awareness of what's going on around you. Walk it out carefully, walk it out with care. Take stock, take inventory of everything in your life and then walk. So it's saying live your life with intentionality, live it on purpose. Don't just let life happen to you, but do it carefully, do it with care. When the Bible talks about someone being a fool, when it talks about someone being a fool, it's generally not talking about their intellectual capacity. It's talking about understanding the true nature of reality. It's talking about understanding the true nature of reality. 
not as fools, but as wise people. There was a time when the most brilliant minds on the earth were convinced that the world was flat. They were convinced that the world was flat, and and, and how did that happen? How could that possibly be that the scientific community said, you know, know, the world is flat, and if somebody said the world is round, they'd say, (laughs) well, you're not a scientist. We know these things. And why did they have that viewpoint? They had that viewpoint because they had limited knowledge at the time, right? They had very limited knowledge, and what they did is they made an assumption They made an assumption that everything they knew was everything there was to know, which is probably the most dangerous assumption you can make in science. And then what they did is instead of humbly saying, our theory is that the world is flat, they said, it is a fact, the world is flat. We can only assume that everything we know is everything there is to know. Therefore, the world is flat, anybody else is a heretic. And then so what happened? What happened? Well, well, people began to sail, right? People began to chart out maps and people began to notice little things and observe things which pointed to a circular world. And before you know it, new knowledge was added and the entire perception of reality was altered and the world was round. As believers, we've been given knowledge into the most profound mysteries of the nature of reality. We know how we got here. We know who put us here. We know why we're here. We know where we're going. We know what we're here for. We know why there are problems in the world. And we know what the future of the world holds. We have profound understanding that you can't have without Christ. And without Christ, Scripture says, you're a fool because you lack the most profound insights into the nature of our reality. You have no insight, is what scripture says. We shared a few weeks ago just about how we see this demonstrated today, again, this assumption that everything we know is everything there is to know. In the world of quantum physics, we talked about how the theories for the nature of reality become progressively more elaborate and quite frankly, ridiculous. As we say, oh, here's an explanation. There's an infinite number of parallel realities. Or there's a multiverse that, you know, there's sort of seven verses, seven universes on, uh, you know, different planes and dimensions and, but you don't believe in God. No, that that would just be ridiculous. That would be ridiculous. And, And you see intellectual minds who are brilliant people working so hard to come up with a theory to explain away God even though we still don't have an answer for the beginning. That still blows my mind to this day. We're we're having discussions about the end of the sentence, but you, you can't even tell me what letter the sentence starts with. But we're the idiots. I mean, what do I know? I'm just a simple person who believes in God. I'm not an intellectual titan. I'm just a simpleton. And what we see is today is we see intellectually brilliant people who are fools, They're fools because they lack the most profound insights and refuse to consider the true nature of reality. Paul says we shouldn't live our lives like we don't have understanding and knowledge because we do. We've been given these insights. Paul says you have these insights. So live with that stuff in mind. Think about it. 
take full inventory and walk out your life carefully. When Paul talks about the time in this verse, it's generally assumed that he's talking about the length of our lives. When Paul says redeeming the time, the time is the length of each of our lives. He's saying that we should live with purpose and we should live with wisdom. What, what wisdom? The wisdom of living in light of eternity. In light of eternity. I am so fascinated at this point in my life by the simple question for us as believers. What is different about our priorities? What is different about our life's goals to everybody else's? If they're the same, if we're chasing the same things, then we're not living in light of eternity because the, the world believes that time is running out. So you better grab as much as you can for yourself because you've only got one shot. For us, we believe that we're only beginning. We're trending up. When we die, we graduate. We believe the complete opposite. We believe where we're going, we will live and dwell for eternity. Paul says, live with that in mind. Keep in mind that the most valuable things you can buy on earth, you will leave behind. You will leave them behind. Paul says, keep in mind that no matter what your financial status is right now, you can accumulate for yourself riches in heaven every day. It's within your power to do so. Paul says, walk carefully. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't get distracted. Don't get caught up. Don't let 10 years pass by and realize that you've accomplished nothing from an eternal perspective. Nothing. Paul says, walk with wisdom. So what does it mean to redeem the time that you have on this earth? What does it mean to redeem something? The definition of redeeming something means to buy, get, or win it back. To change it for the better. Scripture says that when we work, we should do our jobs as though we're doing them for the Lord. As though we're doing them for the Lord. Not a boss who doesn't appreciate what we're doing. Paul says, listen, if you're doing landscaping, do it like you're doing it for Jesus. Don't just do it like you're doing it for him. Do it for him. Do it for him. Do it as though your work is a reflection on him. Because it is. It is. Paul says, work unto the Lord. That's an example of taking work, something mundane, your, your nine to five grind, and redeeming it, redeeming it. Instead of saying it's a paycheck, you're saying this is my opportunity every day to honor God through the work I'm doing. And I'm gonna do it not just like I'm doing it for him, I'm gonna do it for him. I'm gonna do it for him. Suddenly something common becomes something sacred. It's been redeemed, it's been redeemed. When we take our, our talents and instead of using them to bring glory to ourselves, we find a way to bring glory to God, we're redeeming our talents. When we take our income and choose to honor God first with it and say, say God, what do you want me to do? You really own it all. What do you want me to do? What do you want my financial priorities to be? We're redeeming our finances. Anytime we bring God into what we're doing, we are redeeming what we're doing. And Paul says that we should apply that approach to our entire lives. And that means finding a way to bring God into everything that we do. Everything that we do. Instead of driving, being a trip from point A to point B, 
with some interspersed communication to other drivers that they're number one, it can become a time of worship or Bible study for you. You can listen to the radio and you can listen to songs and music that are gonna fill your mind with one set of values. You can listen to talk radio and listen to a group of people who are paid to find things to be angry about. Or you could put on something that's gonna teach you God's word and suddenly this drive becomes church, you and God, right there in that moment. You can put on worship and suddenly say, you know what I did today? I worshiped God for an hour. I studied his word for an hour. I mean, most of us would say, man, I don't know how to do that. Just, just put on a teaching CD in your car. Listen to a podcast. Listen to a worship album. There's so many times for me, I have my best worship times in the car. God, God just meets me, and then I go to meet somebody, and they're like, have you been crying? It's like, no, no, traffic was just really bad. <clears throat> everything's good, everything's fine, you know. I'm sure the pe- people next to me in the car are wondering, like, what's up with this guy? He's like, uh. <laughs> they're like, check out this guy. He's completely out of his mind, you know. So, but you can redeem it. You can redeem driving. We live in one of the most beautiful places on earth, and every day when you drive, you look at the mountains, man. That is a reminder. There is a God who is mighty and powerful. You know what I think when I look at the mountains, I always think, man, you know how long that mountain's gonna be there? Till the one who put it there comes back for it. That's how long it's gonna be there. And I remember that's the God that I serve. That's the God that I serve. And I'm suddenly reminded, man, what am I doing worrying whether God is big and strong enough to solve my issues? Look at the mountain. He just put it there said, that would look good right about there. And there it is. There it is. When we're exercising, don't just be thinking, oh, God, seven and a half more minutes. Oh, God, are you even existing right now? Don't think that. Just pray for somebody. Pray for somebody while you're exercising. Pray for somebody while you're exercising and and redeem it. You know, there you go. (laughs) Pray for somebody while you're exercising. Instead of cursing God, you could be praying for somebody while you're exercising. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. This is profound. Only the moments of our lives that are redeemed have any eternal meaning, value, or significance. I wish I had a better way to explain this because if we really understood this, it would change everything about the way we live. Only the moments of our lives that are redeemed, the moments that we bring God into, have any eternal meaning or value or significance. Time spent doing your taxes, you know it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Unless, instead of complaining, you say, hey God, thank you. Every single one of these receipts reminds me that I'm in the top 1% wealthiest people on earth. I'm blessed. God, thank you that I have receipts to process. Thank you that I have to file taxes. I'm blessed. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor, and that's my calling. That, that's my vocation. That's my job. And everything I do is not redeemed because that's my job. Just because that's my job. Everything I do is redeemed. It doesn't work that way. I can process receipts as well, and I can bring God into it, or I can just process receipts. I can load and unload a truck. I can, I can bring God into it, or I can just load and unload a truck. Being a believer, even being a pastor, doesn't make everything you do redeemed. It's finding a way to intentionally bring God into what you're doing. 
bring him into what you're doing. Paul's reminding us that we have limited time on this earth and we should redeem as much of it as possible. And and a wise thing to do is to stop and ask yourself on a regular basis, in light of this, am I wasting my life? Am I wasting my life? That's a big question, am I wasting my life? Don't go and ask somebody else if you're wasting your life. Don't do that. I mean, that, that, that's literally like one alcoholic asking another, do you think I have a problem? No, you don't have a problem. I'll drink to that, you know? It just, it doesn't make any sense to go to another person and say, do you think I'm wasting my life? As though the person's gonna say, yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. I do, I think you're wasting your life. No one's gonna say that. What you need to do is you need to go to the word of God. You need to evaluate your life through the lens of scripture. And what you're doing in that is you're asking God, you're asking your creator, the one who knows why he puts you here. You're asking him, hey God, you, you know, so you tell me, am I wasting my life? Am I wasting my life? You know why I'm here, God, so you tell me. It, it doesn't matter if the whole world is telling you something is important. If God's word tells you it's unimportant, it's unimportant, it is unimportant. Don't form your priorities and values from what everybody else tells you. Listen to his word. In verse 17, it says, therefore, and whenever we see therefore, we always stop and ask, what's it there for? It always means in light of what we've just said. So because of what we've just said, Paul says, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Last week we talked about how a disciple of Christ, somebody who's really following Jesus, is consumed, is interested in the question, God, how do you want me to live? I mean, let's just step back a minute, rationally and philosophically, and say, firstly, the most important question in life has to be, is there a God? It has to be. The second most important question has to be, if there is a God, what does he require of me? What does he want from me? And what we find in the life of a disciple is somebody who says, yes, there is a God. I've been overwhelmed by what he's done for me and out of my gratitude for what he's done for me, I wanna know, is there anything I can do for him? The person who's not a disciple says, you know, there probably is something he wants me to do, but uh, (laughs) I don't really want to hear it. So as long as I don't open up the Bible, as long as I don't go to church, then I don't know and I'm ignorant, as though God's going to go, oh, that was cool, you didn't know. (laughs) As though God's going to be okay with that, you know? It's like if I tell my kids to clean their room, it's like them thinking, you know what, if I block my ears when dad says that, that's an effective strategy to not having to clean my room. It's like, no, you're just going to get in trouble for not cleaning your room and for blocking your ears. You know I was trying to talk to you. Come on, son. You know. You know. So a disciple is consumed by the question, what does God say about how I should be living? Because they look at God. They look at what he's done for them. And they say, you know what, if there's anybody I can trust, it's him. If there's anybody who wants the best for me, it's him. He doesn't need anything from me. So any instruction he gives me is for my benefit. He doesn't need anything from me. I can trust him. Therefore, the wise person knows God's word and knows how to live. 
The unwise person doesn't and wastes their life on things that are meaningless. Things that are meaningless. I have to examine myself on a regular basis and discern, am I letting God tell me what matters? Am I letting God tell me what's important? Or am I listening to the wrong voices? Am I listening to the wrong voices? And it happens more easily than we think. I mean, that's what Facebook's all about, right? It's your daily dose of, here's what you should care about. Here's what success looks like. Here's what a perfect family looks like. And my shoes, and my breakfast. (laughs) Here's what happiness looks like. This is what really matters, you know? I just wonder how many people are, you know, when when they take pictures of themselves, are like threatening their children with physical violence. I just need you to take one photo looking really happy, like we're a happy, functional family, and then we can go back to fighting, and I'll buy you an ice cream, okay? Just one photo. Here we are on a typical day. Just a normal photo reflecting how our life always is. Enjoy feeling inferior. So if you don't have God's word in your life, on a regular basis, if you don't have God's word in your life on a regular basis to counteract that, without realizing it, you will begin to orient your life around those values and those priorities. And you'll begin to believe lies. And you'll focus your whole life around things that are meaningless. Things that are meaningless. What can I get that's new that I can show off? can't wait to get a a, a new car so I can take a picture of it and show it to everybody. And suddenly your whole life becomes about the same things that are cared about by people that don't even believe in God. And we're chasing the same things. We're living for the same things. May we be wise. May we be wise instead. Verse 18, Paul says, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Don't leave yet, let me explain. Somebody's like, I can't, I can't, I can't handle this, I gotta go, I gotta go. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. The word dissipation simply means excess. So he says, don't be drunk with wine in which is excess. And, and that word implies a man who has been abandoned and cannot be saved, cannot be saved. So he's saying, don't be drunk with wine because in that is a place where you are just lost. You are like an abandoned person who cannot be saved. That's what it's like when you're in that state. And we're gonna dig into this. I wanna explain it a little bit. One of the reasons that Paul puts this in his letter to the Ephesians is because around that time there were several pagan religions who would hold ceremonies that were essentially drunken orgies and they believed that this was a way to achieve ecstatic communion with the spiritual world, with the spiritual world. I always wonder if they had like, you know, a a festival of faiths or something like that in the village where everyone has booths and, you know, it's like, well, what are you offering? It's like, well, we have temple prostitution. We have drunken orgies, Uh, you know, and then you have the Christian booth, which is offering the complete opposite. And this is just interesting because when you read the Bible, it's easy to say, oh, you know, they don't live in the times that I live in now. You're right. It was way worse when this was written. It was infinitely more socially liberal. It was more sexually liberated. It was just completely out of control. It was like a normal thing. Like, what are you doing on Friday? Oh, probably drunken orgy. What are, how about you? You know, oh, 
temple prostitution. Okay, I'll see you on Saturday for the game. I mean, that was just a normal part of life, and Christianity was in such stark contrast because Christianity said, no, it's not about you. It's about knowing God and serving other people. That, like, what? You're not going to sell a lot using that approach is probably what most people told believers. Stark contrast to the culture that they lived in. When you're gone, when, when you're on alcohol or some illicit substance, you, you, many of you know you reach this point where you lose control of yourself. You, you lose control of yourself any way you cut it. And we, we all understand that what comes out of us, out of our speech and our behavior in those moments, doesn't come from somewhere else. It comes from somewhere in us, right? And if you've ever been in that place and been filled with regret, you know you're trying to backpedal and explain that you didn't really mean what you say or what you did, that it wasn't really you, but the problem is it was you. It was you. It was just the part of you you work really hard to suppress most of the time. The Bible says that part of you is called the flesh, and the flesh is the part of us that simply wants to do what we want for self-gratification at any cost. It doesn't care at all about anybody else. And even in the normal person, we understand that, you know, there are, there are limits to that if we're going to live as a developed culture with one another. But for the Christian, the goal is to have that part defeated. Paul says, have that crucified every day. When you're drunk, when you're gone on some illicit substance, what actually happens is all resistance crumbles to the flesh. And you are exposed, and who you really are is exposed. And you do what you want because it's what you want to do. You say what you want because it's what you want to say. And the barriers that stop you thinking about anybody else are removed. Are removed. It's not somebody else. It's you. It's just you on full display. And most of the time, it's not very, very pretty. In those moments, we're, we're surrendering control of ourselves to the flesh. And Paul says to the Corinthians, I was going to be completely blunt. Paul says, when you do that, you're literally inviting demons to come and hang out with you for a while and have control over you for a while. Because that's literally what Satan is trying to do. Is he's trying to say, come and live in the flesh. To live in the spirit is to be led by Christ, led by the Holy Spirit. To live in the flesh is to be led by Satan, literally. And so in those moments, we are communing with the spiritual world. They're actually right you are achieving communion with the spiritual world. It's just not the spiritual world that you think. It's demonic, and that's the truth of what Scripture says. And I want to be completely honest and clear. The Bible is not preaching against alcohol. It's preaching against drunkenness. And there's a difference. Don't forget, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into the best wine that's ever existed. And when he didn't, he wasn't like, okay, 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 show's over. Let's pour it down the drain now. You didn't do that. Like they drank it, you know, and they enjoyed it, and it was good. And, and there were probably more than just one glass. They were probably a little bit, as the Bible would say, merry. Everybody's jokes were a little bit funnier. They were having a good time, you know. But I don't think that any of the apostles were on the table with a clay jar on their head. I don't think they were doing that. I think they were just having a good time. And they were still aware of what they were doing. The Bible is talking about drunkenness, that, that place where you no longer have control and the flesh rises up within you and begins to drive and control your behavior. Scripture says do not be mastered by anything. Don't be mastered by anything. Be in control of yourself. So it's not preaching against alcohol. I drink, I wanna be very upfront, but I 
do not get drunk and invite demons to control my behavior. Just to put your mind at rest about your pastor this morning. Oh, that's good. I'm always looking for a pastor who doesn't hand over control of himself to Satan. That's a plus. It's a plus. <laughs> Definitely a good thing. So Paul says this. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be controlled by alcohol, but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. As a drunkard would consume alcohol until they're overtaken by it, controlled by it, Paul tells us that the righteous equivalent is being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're called to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The same way that alcohol empowers our flesh, the Holy Spirit empowers our spirit. We are to have our behavior affected by the Holy Spirit. Craving the Holy Spirit, finding moments in the day to sneak around a corner and pray, hiding a Bible inside your textbook, worshiping even more when people say, haven't you had enough? Haven't you had enough? Addicts are, are so creative at finding ways to indulge the addiction. May we be that creative about finding ways to indulge our spirit with the Holy Spirit and with the presence of God. Were you praying right there? Yeah, yeah, I was. I just thought I'd sneak one in, you know? Oh, okay. May we be that creative about being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is living in the conscious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and letting his mind, through his word, dominate everything that is thought and done. It's living through the lens of Scripture. On, on a side note, this is really important. Paul doesn't say, instead of being drunk with wine, be drunk on the Holy Spirit. Paul, Paul doesn't say that. He's not saying it's way cheaper. Be drunk on the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that. And, and here's why I say this. Because there are entire sides of Christianity, the big Christian family, that take this approach. That build entire churches around this verse. Hey, don't be drunk. Be drunk on the Holy Spirit, man. Woo! I mean, there's literally entire churches like this. And they stumble around like they're drunk, they fall over like they're drunk, and they claim that this is what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit. Never forget that in Galatians, it says that the final evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. It's self-control. So when you see somebody saying, I'm being taken over by the Holy Spirit and that's why I'm barking like a dog. <sighs> something, something doesn't jive with that. It's not in the Bible, it's not in the Old Testament, it's not in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't do it, the apostles don't do it, the early church doesn't do it. It's completely crazy. Now listen, there's a lot of believers in that camp who love Jesus, who are going to heaven, okay? They're a part of the family, but they're like that awkward uncle who shows up at your family reunion. They're in the family, they're in the family, but you just know at some point they're gonna say something crazy, you know? You know, they're just gonna break out in something. They're the person in the middle of the church service who's gonna stand up and start yelling, you know, and you're like, thank you, Uncle Joe. Please, please have a seat. Love you, love you, Joe, okay. So just when somebody ever says that to you, just, just remember if you ever find yourself in a place where people are behaving that way, just know that's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. And it's a distortion of scripture and it goes against what the Bible says is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you're in a place like that, I thoroughly recommend you leave. I really, really do. Unless you just want to be entertained and enjoy the show, which I couldn't really blame you for. But just know that uh, 
it doesn't line up with the word of God at all. It doesn't line up with the word of God at all. Now, Paul shows us a few things that show up in our lives when we're living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 he says, speaking to one another, underline one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, underline in your heart, to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And the rest of Ephesians, all the way from here to the end of chapter six, the end of the book, contains instructions based on this command. Sing, give thanks, and submit to one another. And Paul just goes through different examples of what that looks like in our life through the rest of Ephesians. So let's look at the first part of his instruction, which is simply speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Paul is not suggesting that our gatherings turn into musicals, don't worry. I hate musicals. I remember the, the first time I saw one, I literally had no idea what a musical was. Uh, 16, and I was 15, and I took my girlfriend on Valentine's Day to see Evita, the one that had Madonna in it, and I had no idea what a musical was. And like 10 minutes in, this horrific thought struck me. They're just going to sing for an hour and a half. Oh my gosh, you know? What have I done? You know, and, and, and I always say, you, and I know that somebody here probably loves musicals and I'm offending you horribly and, I, and I'm sorry, but you know, I'm the one preaching. So, um, and what I didn't understand about musicals is, is there was no connection between things that were important and things that weren't important and what they sung about. Like they sung about a character dying and they sung about going to get a bucket of water from the well. It just made no sense to me. I was like, we're going to the well, the well, the well. It's like, just go to the well. Man, so, so but uh, my daughter loves musicals, just so you know. She does, lots of people love musicals, and now I'm an enlightened person, and I've mastered the art of pretending I enjoy the musical. <laughs> so Paul's not saying that we should do that, you know. It's like you should be mad at the door, like, welcome to the church, the church, the church. Paul's not, Paul's not saying that at all. What he's saying is he's saying that when we sing, when we sing out loud to one another, we are speaking to one another. He says when you sing in the church, when you're in a group of people and you sing out loud so other people can hear you, it has the same effect on them as saying something encouraging to them. And you say, well, well, if I do that, people might hear me. Paul says that's the entire point. That's the whole point. People are supposed to hear you. And, and when you're together in an atmosphere of worship, when Christ is the center of attention, and you find yourself surrounded by other people glorifying Jesus together, it has a powerful effect on your spirit. It builds you up. It gives you this little preview of what heaven is gonna be like. And when we gather together, always remember this. When we gather together, the whole point, the main point that God has us do this is so that we can encourage one another in the faith. So that we can encourage one another in the faith. Our heart can't be first and foremost, what's best for me? Our heart can't be, do I like singing out loud or don't I like singing out loud? It is about what blesses the other believers in the church. That's what it's about, first and foremost. And them hearing you sing, even though you may not believe this, builds their faith and blesses them. 
You might wish it was okay to not sing out loud, but, but the Bible says when we get together, we need to verbally, audibly, out loud, speak to each other with songs of worship. If you or I are disciples of Christ, then let's break it right down. We will do the things that he asked us to do. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. And Jesus says, when you get together, sing out loud. Praise me together. So as we see singing out loud as part of Paul's instructions, we also see the command to worship, to make melody in our own heart. And this refers to what takes place on the inside of us that other people may not be aware of. There's something that we can do any time that builds up our faith, and that is to what Paul would say, make melody in your own heart. Stop, praise God, worship him, glorify him, listen to music in your car as we were talking about. Praise God on the inside when you see a mountain or something that just trips something in your memory and says, man, God is good, God is powerful. Thank you that you're in control of all things. That's all making melody in your own heart. And Paul doesn't say it's either or. Paul doesn't say pick one at any given moment. Paul says do both. Do both. Sing out loud when you're together and when you're not together. Make melody in your own heart. The Bible doesn't give us the option of just making melody in our own heart when we're together. Even if it makes it uncomfortable, even if it's not our preference, it's in the Bible. And it's one more way we're reminded that it's not about me. It's about us. It's not about you. It's about us. And Jesus has asked us to worship him out loud. So let's do it. The power of praise is, is, is remarkable, and, and all you have to do is read the story of Paul and Silas. And we're going to run through this real quick in Acts 16. Let me read it to you. It says this, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, their wounds, And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. You see, Paul and Silas in prison, they worship and their prison literally crumbles around them. Literally crumbles around them. Scripture says, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. There's power in worship. There's power in worshiping when you're in your darkest place. And the power in singing out loud is that sometimes when we gather together, we don't know, but there's probably some of us who are in a dark, dark place right now. I know that any given week, there is probably somebody here who can barely get the words out without breaking down. Their great accomplishment is just getting here today, and that took everything within them. So when we worship, when we sing, We're doing it on their behalf as well so that their darkness can be lifted, so that their prison can be broken through the power of praise and the power of worship. In the writings of Paul and the Psalms of David and and throughout the scriptures, we're encouraged to worship because it's powerful and because we need it. 
we're encouraged to understand this and understand that worship should not be dictated by our emotions. Shouldn't be dictated by our emotions, but it should be rooted in an unchanging, constant God and not in our current emotional condition because then we're really only worshiping ourselves, right? Hey, you know, I praise God when I'm doing great. When I'm not, I don't. Well, it's about God, and he never changes. That's why we worship him, because no matter what's going on with us, he's still God. He's still God. David would even speak to his own spirit. In Psalm 103, he says, he's given instruction to his own spirit. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And he goes on. The your in that psalm is his own spirit. He's telling his own spirit, hey, worship God. It's what you need to do right now. It's what you need to do. Worship brings freedom. It brings hope. It brings healing. Don't wait until you feel like it because when you need those things, you won't feel like worshiping. But worshiping is the very thing that will bring those things, hope and freedom and healing. In verse 20, we read Paul saying, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks always. This is so connected to what we read earlier where Paul instructs us to redeem the time. And we, we talked about this biblical idea right at the beginning of Ephesians of praying constantly, praying without ceasing, that it's like a, it's like a tickle in the throat. You know, every now and then you just can't help going, <coughs> just is a tickle there. And the whole idea behind that term, pray without ceasing, is that it just comes out of you just like a tickle in the throat would throughout the day. So Paul says, give thanks. If you're thinking, well, what, what can I pray about? I've run out of things to ask for. Paul says, just be giving thanks all the time. Be giving thanks. When you have a good interaction with your spouse and you walk away, just walk away saying, God, thank you. Thank you for my spouse. Thank you for someone who loves me. You have a good interaction with your kids, or even if you have a bad interaction, give thanks. Give thanks at your job that you have a job. Paul says be doing this all the time, all the time. Not only that, but be thanking God all the time for the work of Jesus on the cross. Be thanking him all the time for what he's done for you. Thank him, thanking. Don't miss this. Paul says that this is a defining characteristic of believers, is that we're thankful we're thankful all the time. Thankfulness is one of our defining characteristics. That's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about worship being passionate at this church. If thankfulness is supposed to define us, I always think, man, when, when somebody walks into the church, my prayer is that they'd find a group of people who are thankful. Because it's, it's one thing when the pastor stands up and preaches about how great Jesus is, how great it is to be loved by Jesus, but when someone walks in the church and they're like, these people look miserable, man. They look miserable. It undermines the entire message of the gospel. But when they walk in and they're like, what are these people so excited about? Why do they seem so thankful? Then the gospel is shared. Then a person that doesn't even know God says, oh, I get it, I get it. They've been forgiven. They've been set free. They found peace. 
with God. That's why they're so thankful. In verse 21, Paul says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And there's two big ideas that I want you to see here. The first is very simply that there's no hierarchy in Christianity. There's no hierarchy in Christianity. There's no pope in Christianity. There's no hierarchy. We're all equal under Christ because we all carry the title of servant. We're all equal under Christ. Paul is emphatic, as he always is about everything that he says, that every single Christian is to be humble and submissive to Christ. Paul says this is the only way for you to be. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is not a personality issue. This is who we are to be, is humble as believers. He's emphatic. There's no other personality type allowed in our faith other than humility. Paul's inference is that this dynamic, this this humility, this servant-heartedness is what makes the body of Christ, the church, work across age barriers, across racial barriers, across financial classes, across ethnic groups. When we all view ourselves as servants, when we all view ourselves with humility, Paul says you won't have any issues getting along together if you view yourselves this way. You only have issues if you view yourself as somehow better than somebody else. But if you don't, you guys will get along. You'll find a way to work it out. Viewing ourselves as humble, submissive servants under Christ is what makes us one as the church. Humility is what makes this work. And secondly, Paul adds, in the fear of God. Scripture again and again points to a fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. And here's what Paul's saying. I I love this because Paul's saying, listen, if after everything I've said to you, after everything I've explained to you in Ephesians 1 through 3, if you're still like, no, I don't want to be humble. I don't want to do that. I don't want to serve other people. Paul saves like his ace up the sleeve for the last sentence and he says, do it in the fear of God. And he says, don't forget, this isn't me asking you to do this. This is God. This is the will of God. And if the only thing that motivates you to obey is a fear of the Lord, and that's still a good thing. But Paul says, listen, you have no fear of the Lord. If you can hear the instructions of God and discard them, Paul says, you don't have any fear of the Lord. So he says, if you fear God, do this. Live this way. Be these people. Heed my words. Heed my instructions out of a fear for the Lord. I can preach entire sermons about the fear of the Lord, but, but understand that this submission to one another is the foundation of all blessed relationships. It's the foundation of all blessed relationships, all blessed marriages, all blessed friendships, parent-child relationships, co-worker relationships. This is what makes all those things work. You will never, ever find the marriage in crisis where both the husband and the wife strive to serve each other and view themselves as servants. That marriage is never in crisis. You wanna know when my marriage gets difficult is when I start deciding that I deserve more and I start viewing myself as more than a servant. Then suddenly I'm not grateful. Then suddenly I'm critical. Suddenly I'm unappreciative. When I view myself as a servant, man, I'm, I'm happy and I'm thankful. And everything works. Everything works. In closing, I, w- I want to tell you about a man named 
Charles Thomas Studd, C.T. Studd, and he was, he was born into wealth in England in 1860 and, and was a, a prodigious cricket player. Cricket's like the British equivalent of baseball, I guess. So he, he was a sports star basically from the age of 16, just one of these guys that's a natural, played for England, um, was basically a player in the first Ashes match, which is like this epically huge cricket match that still goes on to this day once a year. He had money and he had fame, and, and, and Stud's father, let me read you his bio, Stud's father became a Christian during a moody Sankey campaign in England, and, and a visiting preacher to the Stud household converted C.T. and his three brothers to the faith. According to his conversion narrative, the preacher asked him if he believed God's promises. I love this. And as Charles' answer was not convincing enough, the guest pressed the point. Charles later recalled the moment I got down on my knees and I did say thank you to God. And right then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again and the Bible which had been so dry to me before became everything. In 1884, after George was taken seriously ill, Charles was confronted by the question, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? He had to admit that since his conversion six years earlier, he had been in an unhappy, backslidden state, as he put it. As a result of the experience, he said, I know that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it seemed worthwhile living for the world to come instead of this one. C.T. Studd would give up cricket and commit his whole life to missions work working with Hudson Taylor in China, establishing works in India and Africa and all over the world. He died in China at the age of 70. I'm not a fan of reading poems, generally. This one doesn't involve any footprints in the sand. But I will make an exception in this case because he wrote a poem that is, um, that is incredible, and this is what he wrote. He said, two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And years later, he added one final stanza. We said, only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. And today we're encouraged by Paul to take inventory of our lives, to take inventory of our lives. Are we redeeming the short time we have? Are we wasting our lives? And this thought hit me as I was studying this week. If you take all of the time in your life that's been redeemed, the times when you brought God into your life, you brought him into your tasks, you brought him into the moment, and you added up that time, what you would have is the true length of your life. Because everything else is meaningless. It will have no impact on eternity. None. In light of that, how long have we lived? Some of us may have lived hours. Some of us days, some of us decades. How long have you lived? How long have you really been alive? If at the end of the day, everything that's meaningless is left behind. Did you live? Did you live? And this is what I mean when I say, do not believe the lie about what matters. You can spend your whole life pursuing meaningless things while other people applaud you. But we're called to live for one applause, and we're called to live for hearing our Heavenly Father say, well done, good and faithful servant. Good living, good living. Good job redeeming the time, redeeming the time. Let's take inventory of our lives today and there's some next steps we can take this morning. And if one of these is your next step, I want to encourage you to write it down on the back of your connection card. There's just something about writing it down. If you're comfortable, I'd love to be praying for you this week. You can just put your card in the box in the back as you leave. But, but these are some possible next steps. Am I redeeming the time or am I wasting my life? And if you're wasting your life, what do you need to change? What do you need to change? Ask God to show you as we head into this time of worship at the end. Maybe tomorrow it's just getting up and starting your day centered on Jesus. Just read chapter one of Ephesians. Secondly, does God's word or our world define success in my life? Who is defining success for you? Is it God or is it the world? Who are you looking for applause from? Who are you looking for compliments from? Who are you looking for encouragement from? You might need to eliminate some things from your life that are causing you to set your priorities around the wrong things. You might need to take some time off from Facebook. You might need to watch less TV so that you can renew your mind around what God says success is. And God says this, this is success, to know me. To know me, that's success. And then finally, am, am I living under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Am I living under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Am I living in humble submission to Christ or others? 
Are there areas of your life where you're in contention with people relationally? Here's what humility means. Humility means instead of praying, God change them. Humility prays, God change me. God change me. Jesus dealt with jerks too, all the time. All the time, all the time. And you know what? He didn't pray that God would change them. He didn't pray, Father, change them. He just made sure that he stayed connected to the Father. That's what he did. So you might need to become reconnected to the Lord and allow him to influence you this morning. If one of those is your next step, just as we head into this worship time, write it down on the back of your card and just spend some time talking to God, saying, God, God, help me. Show me what I need to change. Show me what I need to do. Show me what I need to do. And as as we take communion, which is available in the back, you can take it at any moment during our our time of worship. I want to remind you, the greatest achievement you could ever have in this life will pale into comparison, will pale in comparison to the greatness of knowing God. Nothing compares to that. The greatest riches, the greatest accolades, nothing you do will ever be a greater achievement than knowing God and being able to say, that's my dad. I'm his son, I'm his daughter. That's the greatest thing we could ever achieve and he achieved it for us. And so success in life is realizing that and valuing that above everything else and handing over your life to God and saying, what what do you wanna do? What do you wanna do with this? What do you wanna do with my time, my talent, my treasure? What do you want, God? What do you want? Nothing I achieve is ever gonna be as great as knowing you. So what do you want me to do with the rest of my life? And allow God to come in and begin redeeming every part of your life.